Hey, this is Pastor Dave from Cross Point Church. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We are a church on the move to redeem people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can learn more about us by checking out our website at crosspointwestdallas.com. You can watch one of our services by going to our YouTube channel at Cross Point Church West Dallas. More than anything, we'd love to meet you in person and for you to be our guest on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We meet every Sunday at 11,000 West Oklahoma Avenue in the great city of West Dallas. We would love to see you soon. And may God use this message to give power and grace to you today. That was a great worship song. Um, they all were. But there's uh, something really, really special about hearing children sing praises to God around you. That <clears throat> well, why don't you uh, say a prayer for me because... I usually use size 14 font, but for some reason this time when I printed out my notes, I stuck with the 12 point font. So uh, some of you are like, whatever, you don't use your notes anyway, so it's true. <laughs> um, let's say a prayer. Father... <clears throat> Indeed, you are good. You are so good. And we're so blessed by you in so many ways. And even when we don't think we are, may you bless us in this way today. May you open your word up to us that we might see you. Maybe in ways that we haven't seen you before, we might, as a result, then worship you in new ways, and we might follow you with new zeal. Bless me as I speak, and bless everyone here as they listen. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> there will come a time in your life, maybe more than once, when you will be forced to reconsider everything you thought you knew about God. The first time that this happened to me was in December of 1986. Our son, 18 months old at the time, was experiencing some problems with his ears, so at the direction of the doctor, we took him to have his hearing tested. After the test, the doctor sat down with us and said, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but your son is profoundly deaf. That's not at all what I expected. I expected, I guess, a correctable situation. You know, oh, he's got this going on, we'll do a little surgery and he'll be fine. But that wasn't the outcome. His situation would be permanent. That happened in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, and, and I was a greenhorn when it came to cities. We're, we're in this big, huge city and I just felt so lost and I felt so alone. And on the way home, 
that long drive home, I remember thinking, God, how could you? I've given my life to you. I've decided to follow you. And this is the thanks that I get. Maybe you've had such an encounter with God. You're, you're cl- cruising along. Life is good. And then something happens that just rocks your impression of God. And it causes you to rethink what you thought you knew about him. Well, this is where Genesis 22 is going to take us today. We'll get there in just a second. Uh, we're going through this series, by the way, on the promises of God. We've seen how God has promised to bless Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to leave his homeland and follow him, and he promises to bless Abraham. He says, nations are going to come from you, and countless people, in fact, as countless as the stars. And as a result, Abraham's descendants would in turn be a blessing to all the nations and the people groups around them. And over the years, God reiterates and reminds Abraham of his promise to bless him. And last week, we saw how he, how he did this by using this mysterious figure, uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up, and he blesses Abraham. He's called the king of Salem, and he's also called a priest of the Most High God. But he blesses Abraham. In essence, he reminds Abraham of all that God had for him. And uh, we saw that that blessing reflected a way that Abraham was to live. He was to live in light of that blessing, which in essence suggested to him that God was uh, for him, that God was approving of him. Indeed, if we quoted it or if we stated it in Romans 8 terms in the New Testament, New Covenant terminology, we would quote that verse, God is for you, Abraham. And if God is for you, who can be against you? So God was for Abraham. In this instance, he was on Abraham's side. and He was fighting his battles. And he was giving Abraham victory over his enemies. And it was a glorious, glorious occasion. And then right after that, or a few chapters, I should say, after that, this whole idea that God was going to bless Abraham and, and that God was for him came to full fruition when we read in Genesis Chapter uh, 21, verses 1 through 7, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him uh, and born to Sarah, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham at that time was a hundred years old. When he had his son Isaac, and then Sarah also, doesn't say it here, but she was 90 years old. And and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So They have Isaac. Here's the promised child. It's been long in coming. In fact, it's been 25 years since 
God called Abraham on day one to this point. 25 years. So he's, he's been waiting for this son. And when he's born, they call him Isaac, which, by the way, means laughter. That's what his name means. So there was a time a few years prior when, when God spoke to Abraham and to Sarah and said, I'm going to give you a son. And they both laughed. They're like, no way, this is not possible. I mean, have you seen me? Like, we're, we're past childbearing years, in essence, is what they were laughing at. But yet, when the, when the son is born, all they could do was laugh. I mean, it was just like, it, just the craziest thing, what God had done. And no doubt it was a joyful occasion as well as they just basked in the wonder of it all. Now, I guess if I was writing the Bible, I, you know, in my thinking, I'd stop right here. Like, this would be the end of Abraham's story. It's a great place to end, is it not? Like, I would have signed off. I would have made verse, what was that, verse 7? The last one, yeah, I would have signed off in verse 8 and said, and they lived happily ever after. That's what I would have done, but that's not what God does. In fact, God is not finished with Abraham. He, his faith is about to go or undergo a major, major test. So now, Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to read all 18 verses here. Well, it's not the whole chapter, but we're going to read down to verse 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon his son Isaac. And then he took his hand. Uh, then he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you obeyed my voice. Now this is definitely a shocking passage. There is no doubt about it. If this passage doesn't cause you to rethink what you thought you knew about God, I don't know what will. First of all, as a disclaimer, we know that from other places in the Bible that God does not encourage child sacrifice. And in fact, he forbids it among his people. That's what makes it so shocking, you know, that he's encouraging Abraham seemingly to sacrifice his child. The practice of child sacrifice, though, to foreign gods was a thing in the ancient world. So, so outrageous as it may seem to us, it was something that would not have been foreign to Abraham. I mean, people around him did it. They did it to these foreign gods trying to gain their favor. And then there's a couple of other things we know as we read this story. We know right from the start that this is a test, right? Right, right off the bat in verse 1, we know it's a test. And furthermore, we know the end of the story. We, we know that the, the angel's going to speak and stop Abraham, and he's not going to slay his son. But for Abraham, this whole thing was real, right? He didn't know it was a test, and he didn't know that the angel of the Lord would stop him at the last minute. And so the position he's in is real. And he's being put in a position to rethink and reconsider everything he knows about his God. Was he really who he had perceived him to be? Now, we don't get any insight, though, into the thoughts of Abraham. The sense we get from the text, from this passage, is that Abraham, if he was struggling with his thoughts, he didn't show it, right? I mean, there are no signs that he wavered in any way. His obedience is rock solid. God calls him in, in verse 1, and Abraham says, here I am, almost military-like. In verse 2, God tells him what to do, and Abraham gets up the next morning. He rises early, in fact, like he doesn't hang out in bed for a while, dreading the day that is to come. He rises early, he saddles his donkey, and he, he takes two of his guys and Isaac. He cuts firewood, and he heads out the door. He doesn't even talk to Sarah. At least it's not said that he did. So the impression you're left with is that, um, you know, Abraham is not hesitating. There is no hesitation. God said do something, and he, he does it. However, 
if human nature is true to form, he had to have been perplexed. So I'm going to take a little liberty here and delve into that particular idea. I, I say that he had to have been perplexed because, because here's what's going on. Like, this is the child that he has been promised by God. And he's waited all these years and miraculously... Now this child is his, and he spent some years with this, this child who's a boy now, and he's grown up, you know, and he's, he's no doubt this doting father. And then God says, take this child and offer him up to me as a sacrifice. I mean, I can't imagine he didn't, like, wrestle with that whole concept you know, everything hinged on this child, it, not just the fact that he was his child, but everything that God was going to do in the future was going to go through this child. If this sort of internal struggle did occur, occur and I think it did, I think the most likely time that would have happened would have been during that three-day journey. I mean, like, God's like, okay, I want you to sacrifice your son just step outside and do it. No, that's not how it was. I want you to travel three days to the place I'm going to show you. Now, can you imagine what those three days were like? The mental back and forth, the questions, the doubts, the spiritual battle. Like, dude, your God is crazy. I mean, stop this madness. Turn around and go home. Back and forth. But then the moment comes when he resolves to trust, I, I believe. He says, I'm not sure what this is, but one thing I know, my God will provide. And in fact, that's what he says to Isaac at one point, right? Like they're, they're heading up to the mountain and Isaac's like, Dad, I see the fire, I see the wood, okay? Like he's doing the math here. Uh could you please tell me where the lamb is? Like, that's a crucial part. It's not here. And Abraham says, God will provide. God's going to provide. That's an expression of faith, is it not? God's going to provide. Now, it's important to get at the exact nature of the test. You know, what's going on here. Like... <clears throat> On the surface, it appears that the test is about allowing things in our lives, even good things, to take the place of God, right? I mean, that's kind of what it, what it seems like. And this is oftentimes the case, and God will indeed test us to reveal our hearts so that we can put things back in order. But that's not what this test is about, okay? This test is about what Abraham thinks about God. It cuts deep into his core beliefs and it challenges him regarding the veracity of God's character. Simply put, it raises the most serious question in one's mind, is he who I thought he was? Is he the God who blesses me with good things? The God who is for me? Or is he the God who teases me and takes things and in reality is against me? 
So the question for Abraham in the midst of this test is, what do you think about God now? When he appears not to be blessing you, but cursing you. How about it, Abraham? Do you trust me when it appears that I'm taking your blessings away? You see, when everything is stripped away, when all the blessings are removed, the question that remains is, what do you think about me now? And it doesn't get more raw than that. How about you? Have you ever experienced such a test? A test where God appears or actually takes from you something you've associated his blessings in your life with? Have you ever faced such a test? Now, you know, tests are different, right? There's, there's different levels of tests. We're talking about the big one, the mother of all tests. The test that causes you to question God, question who he is. Have you ever faced a test like that? It can be, like I said, these, these large type things. Or it can be smaller things that are just chronic. You know, they just keep coming back, keep coming back. And it's always in your life. A bad health diagnosis. The death of a child or a parent or a spouse. Being fired or let go from your job. Coming to a place of financial ruin. A handicapped child. Or maybe childlessness. You name it, but there are things that you associate with God's blessings in your life. You've looked at that thing and you've thought, yes, God is for me. God has blessed me with this. But then... In one fell swoop, it's taken from you. And you hear that voice that, that rings in the back of your mind. He's for you? Really? Looks like he's against you to me. I mean, if he was for you, why would you be going through this? Like, wouldn't he rid you of this pain and this problem? Wouldn't he rectify it? Or, or why did he ever let it happen in the first place? I mean, he is God. He is sovereign. Like, what is he doing with you? Is this what you signed on for? It's perplexing because... What the voice is suggesting to, to you does kind of make sense, right? I mean, it's a, it's a reasonable line of questioning, albeit a human line of questioning. You just can't make sense of a God who would apparently take blessings away from you. Now, Abraham's not the only one in Scripture who faced such a test, right? Um, there's... The curious case of Job, right? The book of Job opens with Job being a righteous man, enjoying the blessings of God. Life is good. But in the spiritual realm, things are astir. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answers this. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side like God? Like you're protecting him. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So God allows Satan to test Job. And long story short, Job loses pretty much everything. Children, servants, livestock, you name it. But he still won't turn against God. He reaffirms his, his trust in the Lord. Is there a next verse? Yeah, here we go. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. So after all this happens, he falls on the ground, he worships, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It's amazing. And then, after that, there's a, a round two of tests and trials for Job, like, he, he does that, and then Satan, like, Satan is like, oh, you, just, you need to let me afflict him. Like, if you let me afflict his body and bring all sorts of terrible things upon him physically, then, then, then he will renounce you. And so that happens. And ultimately, at the end of that, I mean, Job comes down with all these boils and sores, and it's just, he's just an ugly mess, right? He's in terrible shape. And then... His wife says this to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Just amazing stuff. In fact... Job's resolve can be summed up in chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's incredible stuff. Just amazing stuff. Out of Abraham, his resolve. Out of Job, his resolve. But we know that these two guys are pointing to another individual who would come in New Testament times. And take this to a whole new level, right? We know that they're pointing to Jesus. You know, I, when I think about this, I believe it's very possible that the same sort of exchange happened with Jesus. I mean, we don't, we don't have it written anywhere, but I, can, I mean, why not, right? God asking Satan, have you considered my son, my one and only son? There's absolutely no one like him on the earth or in the heavens. He's sinless and he's perfect. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. 
I mean, Satan had to be present in some way, right? We know that he was there at the start of Jesus' ministry when he tempted Jesus out in the wilderness. And he had to be there at the end, I believe, even though Mel Gibson takes some liberty in the Passion of the Christ and shows Satan tempting Jesus in the garden when he's praying, right? I mean, the scriptures do not say that that indeed was the case, but... Again, I believe it's good speculation that Satan was there in some way. Trying to tempt Jesus in that moment. Very possibly pounding in his head the question, what do you think about your God now? Right? And like Abraham, Jesus ascends a mountain that represents the greatest test of his life. He seems resolute. His obedience is impeccable. He doesn't even open his mouth in resistance. He's like a lamb led to the slaughter. He too has a three-day journey in front of him. One in which he will wrestle with that same question, that same significant question that confronted Abraham and Job. Is your heavenly father really for you or is he against you? What what do the circumstances suggest to you now? Is he blessing you or cursing you? I mean, he has to wrestle with this question. You see, because he's fighting for faith, right? I mean, that's what Jesus is doing. The Bible says that he's the author and finisher of our faith. So he's the pioneer. He's the first one to ever have faith. Ultimate faith, right? Faith on this level. Faith against every odd, not just humanly speaking, but heavenly speaking. He's the first. He's going where no man has ever gone. So so if he is the author of our faith, then he's fighting for faith. He's wrestling just like you and I do with his thoughts about God, his thoughts about his heavenly Father. I mean, in essence, you see, faith is believing that God is, that he exists, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what faith is. And so the doubt that hammers away at faith is, is he really a rewarder? I mean, is he, like, look at you. You're a mess, Jesus. And when he gets on the cross, what does he do? What are the wor- some of the words that comes out of his mouth? That's one of them, man, absolutely. The one I'm thinking about is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, those are representative thoughts. And if you want to get deeper into the mind of Jesus, read Psalm 22. The the things that was going through his heart and his mind. How he was wrestling with. And on several occasions in Psalm 22, he will ask the question or he will pray, God, don't be far from me. Where are you? Like he's, he's, he's fighting the fight. He's crying out to his heavenly father. Of course, by now, Jesus fully knew, though, that he was indeed being forsaken. The wrath of his heavenly Father was about to be poured out against him, and in this case, it was real, right? He knew he wouldn't be coming down from that mountain alive. 
No ram was going to be provided in the thicket. He was the ram. And in his ear, another voice, it's a voice of the passers-by, let his God save him. I mean, you see, that represents the voice of Satan, right? Where's your God now? That's the point. Like, you said he would save you. Well, where is he now? You see, that's what Jesus is wrestling with. He's fighting the fight. In essence, what Satan is saying to Jesus through the passers-by, he's not who you believed him to be, is he? Curse God and die. Just curse him and die. Be done with this. And then Jesus responds finally, ultimately, this way. He says, it's finished. Now, we believe that to mean that he has completed this work that he came to do. Like, he, he has ultimately um, triumphed and salvation has been won for us. But listen, it is not just, it is not just a, a principle or truth, right? It's not just, here you go, like, like I did it, now it, it's he fought for it. Like, in other words, what he's giving you is something that he earned. You could never earn salvation, right? We know that. But he did. He earned it. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I mean, he did it. <laughs> Those last words indicate, I have prevailed I have made it all the way to the end. And never once did I deny my father in this terrible ordeal. Never once did I buy into the line of reasoning that was being suggested to me about you, Father. Never once have I doubted you. Never once have I second-guessed you. Again, read Psalm 22 and you get a chance. Read the triumph part toward the end of the chapter. He did not, he did not fail. He did not deny his faith in his heavenly father. And that is the same triumphant faith that is passed on to us. It is a fought for, triumphant faith over the powers of earth and hell. And then on the third day, three-day journey, God says, it's true. He did prevail because if he had failed, he would still be in the grave. He did not sin. <clears throat> now, The amazing thing is that Jesus prevailed when the idea of God being against him was absolutely true. Like, you and I fail many times because we perceive, 
we simply perceive that God is against us. And it's not true. Like, we can't pass that test. But Jesus prevailed nonetheless. And when we ask the question, how does God provide for us in Jesus? Well, one of the answers is that by him dying, he he forgave us of our sins. He, He paid the penalty, in other words, for our sins. And God provided for us in that way, that we too can be clean. But God, um, Jesus also provided uh, for us by way of his sinlessness, which means that his righteousness was also provided for us in that moment. So think about it this way, as I was just alluding to. Just imagine, maybe you don't have to imagine, maybe you've truly experienced it, you're, you're in that or facing that serious trial, um, or any trial for that matter. Have you ever failed God when you were being tested? I would imagine if I could talk to you individually, every one of you would say, yes. I failed. And you know what? There's another test coming at some point in your life, and guess what? You will struggle and fail again. You want to know why? Because we're sinners. And, and trials and tests seem to pull out the worst in us. No matter how how hard we try, and we should try, we should strive for obedience, but we fail. We miss the mark. We fall short. Very possibly, we think bad things about God. We accuse God. You know, we're not like Job was. We, We accuse God of wrongdoing. But what's been provided for us is the perfection of Jesus, right? So that as you fall short, as you miss the mark, as you fail, you should realize that Jesus has covered you by his perfect, sinless, non-failing life. In other words, the righteousness of Jesus is yours. So here's how that plays out, like, don't, I mean, spend, spend some time reflecting on your failure and, and regret your failure. Feel sorry about it. Feel shame over it, no doubt. Try to get up from there and, and do better the next time. But also in that moment, stop. Stop, like, being too introspective, like just stop and get outside yourself and go, you know what though, Lord, I want to praise you right now because it's okay. I missed the mark, I fail, and that's not okay, but yet it is okay because Jesus has covered me with his righteousness. So, so my failure doesn't mean that I am no longer your child. It doesn't mean that I'm no longer in relationship with you. 
You can go to the point of even denying God. And let's face it, we, we have that example in Scripture, right? I mean, what about Peter? Peter denied God, but Jesus had him covered. <laughs> when Jesus met Peter after the resurrection and he asked him those three times, do you love me, do you love me? Finally, you know, Peter says, Lord, you know. <laughs> like, you know the depth of my love for you. And Jesus is saying, it's okay, I got you covered because I love you. I love you. Jesus provides for us in that way, but as, as being our forerunner, the one who's gone before us, in terms of this victory over faith, he also provides for us in terms of deliverance and rescue. Jesus provided for you by becoming a substitute for sinners. He's your substitute. He bore the wrath of God for you, and therefore God is not angry with you. He's not against you. Like if you turn to Jesus, like Jesus took all God's anger. That's what it means when, when we say that, that Jesus bore the wrath of God. Jesus took all of God's anger. So if you're in Jesus, God is no longer angry with you. Now, some of your, some of your actions may displease God on a certain level or scale, but not ultimately. You're his child in Jesus, and he is not angry with you any longer. His anger was poured out on Jesus. So if you put your hope in Jesus... God can only be for you. Whatever your mind may suggest to you about God's sentiments towards you during your test or trial, they must align with God being for you or it's lying. It's a lie. Like, <laughs> And then there is no depth to which you can descend that's any lower than where Jesus has gone. Even if you're at a suicidal depth, Jesus is deeper. So look to him. Ask him to help your unbelief. See, it's unbelief. It's, it's a blindness that prevents you from seeing this truth. Wait, expect, and keep being obedient. Keep doing that day after day. Put one foot in front of the other in faith and God will provide for you. He will make a way where there seems to be no way. And that's the truth. <clears throat> because when it comes down to it, when God's put to the test, The revelation, the answer is that God is good. He is good. And he is everything you perceived him to be on day one. He's made a way. He's provided. And when you put him to the test, he passes the test. Let's pray. I, you know, when I, when I 
put together this sort of sermon, just please um, keep your heads bowed. When I put together this sort of sermon, um, you know, I think very possibly it's, it's for someone here today. It might just be one person. It might be several of you. Um, and so I hope that this is helpful to you wherever you might be, whatever you might be going through, whatever you might be facing. Maybe what you're going through has kind of turned you away from God and you've started to doubt and question God's plan for your life, his direction in your life. Some things have happened that have really caused you to scratch your head and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I want to do this. This doesn't make sense to me. Maybe that's you. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He's been tempted in every way like you have. And he's here to help you. Come to him in your time of need. Come to his throne of grace to receive mercy and grace. He will help you. That is an absolute truth. You're not alone. He is with you. Lean on him. Look to him. Cry out to him. And keep doing it. Hold fast. Wait. Expect him to show up. He will. God will provide. He will provide. Father, bless us, especially those who are struggling today in an intense and serious way. Bless us with these truths and make these things obvious to us by your Holy Spirit that this is your word and it can be trusted. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you would, please stand at this time. I want to uh, bless you with a benediction now. So just receive this benediction from the Lord. It comes from the first chapter of Peter's first book. In this you rejoice in the fact that you are heirs, that is, with Christ, you rejoice in that, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God bless you all. Have a great rest of your day. We'll see you next week. Hey, Pastor Dave, thanks again for listening to this message. We want you to know that what you just heard is a glimpse of what happens on Sunday mornings, but you know, the church is so much more than what happens on a Sunday mornings. Coming to a service is, is just a slice 
of who we are and what God is doing in and through us. So we would love to get to know you and let you get to know us. And maybe the best way to do that is come to one of our services, but you can also go to our website and fill out a contact form, and one of our pastors will follow up with you very shortly. Until then, we hope you have a great day, and thanks again for listening.